So this is about kingship and Davidic kingship. And I was wondering, you know, what is the importance of a king? And so I started flipping through the Old Testament, and I came to the book of Judges. And the end of the book of Judges says this. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I was like, ah, what's up with that? In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so I started going back a little bit farther, and the last five chapters in the book of Judges tells us why there was an issue with not having a king. So in chapter 17, and if you want some good reading today, um, take some time and read Judges 17 through 21. So in chapter 17, we see this guy named Micah, and he's a son, and he steals 1,000 pieces of silver from his mom. So that was kind of like her, her retirement fee, right? I mean, that's a lot of money. And she put a curse on whoever stole this money. And the son, fearing the curse, actually restores that thousand pieces of silver. And instead of the mom leaving the curse there, the mom decides to bless and gives the son 200 pieces of silver. And so the son takes that 200 pieces of silver and he goes and makes an idol out of it. So all of this is happening in the, in the town of Ephraim. So after he makes this idol, there's this young Levitical priest who's coming through. You know, probably just looking for a job, hanging out, you know. And he comes to Micah's house, and Micah says, you're a Levitical priest. I have an idol. I need a priest. And so he becomes the priest for Micah. So the next statement there is, in those days Israel had no king. And you know what? I didn't start my time, so you guys are going to have to listen to me five minutes longer than I thought you were going to have to. <laughs> so um, the next scene that we see is the tribe of Dan coming through. And the tribe of Dan is coming through Ephraim, and they stop at Micah's house. They see this idol. They like the idol. And guess what they do? They steal the idol. And so Micah comes and is chasing after them and saying, hey, you stole our idol. And the Danites go, you know, there are a lot more of us than you. Is it worth your life? And they, he says, no, of course not. And then they say to the Levitical priest, why don't you come and be a priest for us? We are a whole tribe. It's much better for you to be a, a, a priest to a tribe than it is for you to be a priest to one family. In those days, Israel had no king. The last three chapters are absolutely hideous. There's wife abuse, there's blatant homosexuality, there's gang rape leading to murder, injustice, brother killing brother, kidnapping. And the book ends with this statement. In those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I think as Americans, we have a hard time with kingship. I mean, honestly, our revolutionary war was about what? Getting rid of the king, right? We want to make sure that we can make our own decisions. We want to decide who governs us. But in actuality, there seems to be something good about kingship. Fundamentally, there is something good about kingship. And so as I was thinking about this, you know, if there would have been a godly king, if there would have been a godly king, would these things have happened in the book of Judges? I don't know. The other thing I think is that we think that Israel should not have needed a king, right? You know, God gave them the covenant. Why should they need a king? And I think that's something that often goes 
on in the back of our minds. Why would Israel have needed a king? But what they did need and what they didn't need was very different. They did need a king, but they did not need a king who was going to judge them like the other nations had. You know, in fact, the rules for kingship had actually been um, established in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 17. So if you want to turn to the book of Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, we see the fact that God lays out the rules for kingship. So verse 14 starts with this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And then it goes on to describe what this king should be like. He should be a fellow Israelite. He should not be a foreigner. The king should not cause the people to return back to Egypt. You know, I think about that. God exerted an awful lot of power to get them out of Egypt. Why should they go back into slavery and into bondage? The king was also to write out a copy of the book of the law and read it all the days of his life so that his heart would not turn away from the commandments and he would not become arrogant and raise himself up above the people. And he was not to acquire things, and I call them weapons, wives, and wealth. He was not supposed to accumulate those things. And so the real power behind the throne was to be God's word. It was supposed to be God's commands. And he was to live and rule under the leadership and authority of God. He was to rule in justice and righteousness. And here's the thing. The king was to be an example of holiness and godliness to his people. And the promise at the end of that is if he does this, if he does this, he and his children after him will continue to be kings in Israel. So the first king of of Israel was... Saul. And we know that godliness and holiness was not a top priority for him, right? He would have been a king like the other nations would have chosen. He was tall, handsome, dark, good-looking, a warrior, all the things that was what a king should look like. But he wasn't who God had chosen because in his heart, he was not a follower of God. And I found it interesting as I was reading that Saul did not copy out a book of the law. Guess who did? Samuel. Samuel was the one who wrote down everything that the king should do. So even from the very beginning, Saul did not follow what the book of the law was saying. So Saul continues to fail to listen to uh, to Sam. uh, Saul continues to fail to listen to God through Samuel. And two years into his reign, it's taken away from him. He reigns for another 20-plus years, but because he offered a sacrifice that was not a sacrifice he was supposed to offer, God told Saul that his line had come to an end two years into this. And so we have David, who is a shepherd boy. He's out roughing it, guarding his family's sheep, and Samuel anoints him to be king of Israel. Now, he doesn't become king of Israel for another 15 or so years, But that is where the anointing began. And we find in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, that God makes a covenant with David through the prophet Nathan. And that is a really important thing to remember. God makes a covenant. And when God makes a covenant, he is faithful to that covenant. 
So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 to 15. Now, therefore, this you shall say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following the sheep, that you may be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent people shall not afflict them anymore as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a son. I will be a father to him and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That was the covenant that God made with the house of David. So the thing with this is that God does appoint a covenant king. And... When this covenant becomes consequences, just like other covenants have. But I want to first talk to you about the covenant comparison between Abraham and David. So you remember the Abrahamic covenant, right? Each of these covenants have these three things in it. People, place, and presence. So the people, God promises to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. The covenant with David is the same. It is for a people. It is for the people of Israel. The place is a promised land or the place of Canaan for the people of Israel. In the Davidic covenant, he says, I will appoint a place for my people so they will dwell in safety. And then finally, you see presence. Every covenant has these things, people, place, and presence. And so in the Abrahamic covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people. And in the Davidic covenant, he promises that Solomon, his son, will build a permanent house so that God's presence can be with them forever. It is a covenant that does not end. It is an unfailing covenant. And the Lord swore a sure oath. That's what it says in Psalms chapter 89. The Lord swore a sure oath that this covenant would not end. But with covenants, there are also consequences. And we read the consequences here, right? So if somebody disobeys the covenant, they are going to be judged by that. And for them, for the kings of Israel, it would have been they were going to be judged by the rods of men for their iniquity. And we see that that does happen in the future here. As we look at the Davidic covenant, we know that some of these kings do go astray. But I can't say this enough. God's covenant does not change. He is a faithful, faithful God. So we know that David dies. And Solomon takes his throne, and initially all is well, and the promises are being fulfilled. The people of Israel are as numerous as the sands of the sea, and they are living to the fullest boundaries uh, in the land that God had promised Abraham. God's presence is with them in the form of a permanent temple, and a wise and just king is leading them. 
But unfortunately, it doesn't last, right? Solomon commits the exact crimes that he was told not to do as king. He accumulates wealth in stockpiling gold and silver. He accumulates weapons in going to Egypt for many, many horses and wives. I don't know anybody who accumulated more wives than that guy. A thousand of them, right? All of the things that he was not supposed to do. Solomon does not keep the covenant, and so the conditions fall into place. And in 1 Kings, we have this. Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servants. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. um, For the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Here's the next important point. The consequences of Solomon's sin are not just his. Because of this one man's disobedience, the nation is torn in two. Because now the fate of the kingdom lies with the king. The health and the fate of the kingdom of Israel is tied directly to the religious conduct of its leaders. And this is an important concept to understand. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. When the covenant is kept, the people are blessed. When he rebels, disaster falls on the whole people. So after Solomon, we see that the kingdom is torn in two. His son Rehoboam gets to keep Jerusalem and the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And the Levites join him because that is where the temple is in Jerusalem. So he gets to keep the temple and the palace. And those ten northern kingdoms. Do you remember that really good um, history lesson that Barry gave us a few months ago with all the flags and stuff up here? That was a great lesson. Um, The ten northern kingdoms rebel and they break away. These kings do not have a covenant with God because they are not of the Davidic line. And these kings and people consistently break the covenant. And none of these kings, zero, none of them follow God's ways. So think Ahab, right? None of those kings follow the covenant. So the northern kingdom is eventually defeated. The Assyrians take them, carry some of them away to Babylon. They put other people onto that property. And those people are the Samaritans of Jesus' day. And what's really fascinating is that these ten tribes fall out of Hebrew texts. They're not written about anymore after that. Things fare a little better in the tribe of Judah, uh, which is a southern kingdom. Because the Davidic line continues unbroken there. But every king in the Davidic line is judged by the covenant. Do they obey it or do they disobey it? We have some faithful kings who restore worship, restore the way that things should be. But again, the majority of them do not worship the Lord and they fall away. And by the time we get to Jeremiah, we are at the end of the lines of the king of David. And the worst of the lot is Manasseh. Remember we've talked about Manasseh a bit. Manasseh actually predates Jeremiah, but he is the worst of the bunch. He fills Jerusalem with bloodshed, injustice, violence. He is so steeped in idolatry that he actually sacrifices his own son to one of the gods. And God's patience runs out and he says, enough. 
And the Lord said by his servant the prophets in 2 Kings 21, 10, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the other Amorites that were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing on Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. And Manasseh brings down covenant curses on his people in two ways. First, as their representative, he sins and God will judge. As covenant king, his record gives God the right to punish the whole people. In a sense, they bear the guilt of his crimes. But he also made Judah to sin with his idols. He had a corrupting effect on his people, causing them to, to indulge in idolatry and in sinful lives. If this sounds familiar, it should, because it echoes what happened in the garden. When Adam sinned, all the people down through history were impacted by that sin up until this day. And Manasseh and Adam both teach us this, that in order for us to be saved, we need a covenant king that will give us a righteous status rather than a guilty status. So by the time we get to Jeremiah, the house of David is so corrupt that he's going to take them off the throne. And we see that the final king, Zedekiah, is actually dethroned and he is imprisoned. God's people are destroyed and the people are carried away into captivity. And there's some questions that this leaves us. Is God faithful to his covenant promise to David? And also, are they still a people? And we're going to be jumping back into Jeremiah here in a second. But these were the two things that were impacted um, in, the, in the life of the Israelites or in the life of Judah. The religious office and also the political office. So under the religious office, the temple was destroyed. And when that happened, the line of Aaron, which was the Levitical priests, no longer were a clan or a line. So as I was reading through this, I kept getting stuck because Jeremiah 33 says, and the covenant I made with the Levitical priests. I had never heard of that covenant. But there is a covenant that God made, and some people think that it happened um, at, the, at the golden idol, at the golden calf, where the Levites came and they said, we will stand for God. So there is this covenant with the Levitical priests, and it is off of the line of Aaron. We've been talking about how the kingdom becomes like the king, but Hosea also talks about how the people become like the priests. In Hosea chapter 4, it says this, like people, like priests. If the priest is not holy, the people are not holy. If the king is not righteous, the kingdom is not righteous. And so this brings out those two very deep issues. Is God faithful to his covenant? And are we still a people? Because with the temple gone, their thought was God is not with us. The temple is gone. This place where God was dwelling was no longer among them. And God in his mercy, he is so merciful and he is so gracious. He gives three prophecies that tell them that, yes, I am still faithful to my covenant. So the people of Judah are in turmoil. 
all that they've believed has gone up in smoke. And these are the three prophecies. So if you want to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 33. And we're going to start in 17. So anytime you see the thus says the Lord or Jeremiah heard from the Lord, those are prophecies. So the first prophecy is this, for thus says the Lord. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to burn offerings, to burn great offerings, to make sacrifices forever. Again, the words of the Lord came to Jeremiah in chapter 20. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he may not have a king, a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. And then in 23, the words of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected these two clans, that he has rejected Levi, that he has rejected the line of David. Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I had not established my covenant with the day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's pretty sure. It's pretty sure. The people are in exile. There is no covenant king. The temple is destroyed. But God is saying what? My covenant is not broken. My covenant is not broken, and I am still going to be raising up a king in the line of David. So, A few weeks ago, um, Justin was talking about Zedekiah, which was the last king of Israel. And his name means the Lord is righteous. All of the kings in the past were a failure. Even the good kings like Josiah, Hezekiah, David, Solomon, all of them failed in some way. But this future king is going to be everything that that God designed the house of David to be. So the description of that future ruler is found in verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of David, of Judah. In those days and in that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute righteousness and justice in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this shall be the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Zechariah gives a really beautiful picture of this. He says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I love all these thus says the Lord's. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. And shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest in his throne. And the council of peace shall be between both of them. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. When we look at this, we see that the priest and the king become one. The branch fulfills both of these offices, that of Levitical king and covenant priest. I'm sorry, I said that backwards, didn't I? 
Levitical priest and covenant king. And because of that, Jerusalem gets a new name. The Lord is our righteousness. Because the king is righteous, the kingdom becomes righteous. Because the priest is holy, the people become holy. Righteous king, righteous people. Holy priest, holy people. And this makes me think all the time, as soon as I read this, it's like, oh my goodness, 1 Peter 2, 9, right? Your chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's who we become. It's who we become. Throughout the story of the Bible, there is a storyline where God is consistently and persistently rescuing and delivering his people. That is what God in his mercy does. He brings people out of their bondage to sin. Now, we see that in the Old Testament where he is constantly freeing them from a physical issue, from a physical enemy. But under the new covenant is out of bondage to sin. And this new rescue, this new deliverance is going to be greater than anything that God has done for his people in the past. And it is what we are living in now. Jesus is now king. He is seated on the throne as priest and king. The kingdom of God is here now. Jesus as high king is in the business of delivering people out of their bondage. He's destroying the works of the devil and restoring his people and his kingdom. Luke 4:18 talks about this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is kingdom talk. That is kingdom restoration talk. And because that is who our king is, what? That is who we are called to be. Jeremiah 33:22 says this, and there goes my clock, which gives me another five minutes because it stopped. Just kidding. <laughs> you never realize how much you talk when you're up here, I'm just saying. But Jeremiah 33:22 tells us this, as the host of heavens cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister before me. God in each generation is raising up kings and priests to implement his kingship on this earth. Ultimately, he will bring in a new heaven and a new earth where this covenant will be experienced more fully, but we are living it now. And what does that look like for us to live it now? Well, I think that we need to join him in the family business. You know, the clans, one was a Levitical priestly clan, one was a kingly covenantal clan. How do we do this? We join him as kings and priests. And what do priests do? Well, they minister to the Lord, and they mediate God's blessing. And he is raising up priests who will walk with God, who will speak God's truth, who will turn many to God. He is raising up priests who will continue to mediate the blessing of God on this earth. I have a friend, and... Maybe every couple weeks or so, I get a text from her, and it's something to the effect of this, I'm going in. 
She has this ability. God has gifted her with a word of knowledge. And so she gets words of knowledge for people that she doesn't even know. So about a year ago, she met this man um, who had been in prison for many, many years because he had killed his wife. And he was released about three years ago from prison. Well, about a month ago, he robbed a bank, stabbed somebody. And on Thursday, she was going to be going in to try to talk to this man because she had a word from the Lord for him. The word that she had before was that God wanted to restore him to his sons, to give a father's blessing to his sons. And so she goes in, and obviously she can't get in to see him because he's, you know, he's in court. But she gives this letter to, um, to the lawyer, who then gives it to this man. But while she's sitting there, she senses that she has another word for somebody else. And it's this young woman who is in the midst of a domestic dispute. And as she's sitting there, the Lord tells her what she's supposed to say. So she walks out of the courtroom, sits down. And this woman comes out of the courtroom and sits down beside her. And my friend says this to her. This is what the Lord wants you to know. You are beautiful. He loves you. And he has not forgotten you. That's it. She mediated the blessing to that woman. As priests, that is part of what we do. We mediate God's blessing to this earth. He is also raising up kings. And what do kings do? Well, they expand kingdoms. Where has God placed you? You know, most of us do not work in churches, right? Most of us are in the marketplace or in the business. Where he has planted you, he wants you to grow and to succeed. And the promise is the same for you, to be fruitful and multiply. Maybe he has you in government or law or agriculture, business, the arts, medicine, education, the humanities, communication. I don't know where he has you, but he has you there for a purpose. And this is the command that you are given. Lead in righteousness. Lead in justice. And lead out of relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what kings do. 2,000 years ago, a new king came and sat down on his throne. He is the king of all kings. He has all authority. He has commissioned his followers to expand his kingdom. He told them that his kingdom would expand exponentially. And he told them that he would be with them wherever they go. That's you and that is me in this range, in the line of kings and priests. I'm going to read Revelation 1. I'd like you to read with me there. Revelation 1, starting in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who, who from who is and who from, was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'd like to pray real quickly. Father, we thank you for this great truth. We thank you that you established a covenant king who is faithful, who is true, 
and who is righteous and who is holy. And because our king is righteous and our priest is holy, we can become a righteous, holy people. And Father, I just pray as we go out from here today, it's the beginning of a new year. I pray, Father, that we would understand that you have called us to be kings and priests to this generation, that you have called us to reach out and to expand your kingdom where you have planted us. I am excited for this new year because I believe, God, that you want to do great things through your church. And so we pray, God, that you would give us insight, you would give us direction, you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would follow hard after you so that we can be righteous kings and holy priests to this people, to this generation. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 11. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like those who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast so that they may open the door to him once he arrives and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. So the master, the king, will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at the table. And he will come and serve them. He will come in the second watch or in the third, if he does, and finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so as we remember what um, the scriptures and, and Nikki said about the kingdom of God being here right now, we also turn our eyes forward too, right? For that kingdom to more fully consummate itself here on earth, for us to be dressed, for us to be ready in action, that we're not just here waiting around, twiddling our thumbs on the couch and watching Netflix all day. That we're actually here to stay dressed, stay ready, keep our eyes on the Father, keep our eyes on the cross. And we remember as we go to this table here that we're coming to the king's table and the king is serving us. Just like it said in that passage that the king is actually serving us at his table, which is unheard of. He is serving the servants because that's the kind of king that he is. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. And so just as Jesus is righteous and just as uh, Jesus is holy, Jesus is also merciful and loving. And so then as we approach this table, one of the passages that um, Nikki read out of 2 Samuel. So we, we often, um, God's covenant doesn't change, but the way that it comes about is usually different than we think. And those promises are different. And so at one point in the covenant to David, he says that um, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So thinking about Jesus as that king, right, got that. But then the next sentence When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And so how does Jesus kind of both fulfill that and turn that upside down? Is that Jesus was this king that did not have sin, that did not commit iniquity. And yet he was, um, he bore stripes for our transgressions for those who did commit the sin. So he, the perfect king, the holy king, the righteous king, 
is also the loving king. When he commits iniquity, though he didn't. But when we commit iniquity, what does the father do out of love? That he, he put that sin and that guilt and that shame on his son whom he so desperately loved and, and that king. And Jesus himself went to that cross. He chose to do the father's will so that many could come to righteousness. And so this king both fulfills, this king Jesus both fulfills this Davidic covenant that we see in Second Samuel and also one-ups it, as God often does. And so as you go to the table today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, remember the kind of king that he is. Righteous, holy, yes. Loving and merciful, absolutely. And that he's a servant. He came, the son of man not to, did not come to, ser- to be served, but to serve, to provide his life for a ransom for many. And oftentimes we, can, um, we don't want to get caught in two different areas. We don't want to get caught in just um, staying in the idea that um, our sins are washed away, that our guilt is taken away, and so um, we don't even necessarily realize that anymore, that, that sin and that shame and that guilt that we struggle with. And so we just are busy, busy, busy and do stuff and do stuff and do stuff. Or on the other hand, we are so enamored with our sin and our shame and our guilt that we don't do anything. But what God calls us to in his kingship, what Jesus calls us to, is to remember that I have you covered. Come to me and receive cleansing. Come to me and receive life. Come to me and I will feed you and I will serve you. And yeah, I'm also going to direct and lead you because that's who you're made to be, and that's who I'm made to be. So as we go to the sukkah, this will be the last um, Sunday that we have the sukkah up, which is that box in the back for those of you who don't know what that that word means, is that as we come there, we remember that God has um, a kingdom that is both here and yet to come. It is already here and yet to come. And we live in that tension as Christians. So we live as kings and priests And we also hope as we come to this table of that fullness, of that intimacy that is just um, looking at uh, a mirror dimly or in shadows right now. And yet we can still taste his goodness here. And we remember our sin and we remember our shame and we don't take that lightly. And we remember that it's not just about us, but everybody else in this room. And not everybody, and not just everybody else in this room, but everybody else in the city and worldwide that this covenant is offered to. Come and remember both what God has done, both what God has promised, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and also that future table that is the king's table that we are invited to and the kind of God that we serve. So, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your covenant towards us. Continue to teach us what that covenant means um, in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, Thank you for the broad, sweeping narrative of Scripture that, like, these stories... Uh, that we talked about today, these prophecies are thousands of years old. And yet you are a God that is, you know, didn't just pop up on the scene last week. That you've been here, you established the rhythm and the pattern of the stars and the sun and the cosmos. That's awesome. That this story that you have invited us into is really your story. It's not our story, but we are appreciative that you invite us into your story. And we thank you for your blood We thank you for the kind of king that you are and that that weight of sin and shame and of not knowing what the heck we're doing can be lifted as we gaze at you and as we feed on you. So we thank you and we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Zechariah 14, Zechariah was a minor prophet that was after Jeremiah, after the exile, after the people were actually coming back into the land and trying to set up this righteous nation, this righteous kingdom, and things weren't going the way that they had hoped. And so the last chapter in Zechariah talks about the coming day of the Lord, and just as a remembrance, um, there was this stuff in Jeremiah a couple weeks ago that Jay pointed to, like, behold, the days are coming, and yet in Christ, behold, the days are here. And also, behold, the days are coming. (laughs) On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in the summer as in the winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. On that day, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, may you go today in faith, hope, and love for today. As you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but listen and walk in grace and love and truth towards one another and towards your enemies, towards strangers, towards those you despise. Know of the Father's love and mercy and also hope for that future coming of the kingdom the fullness thereof, where the glory of the Lord will be everywhere and the Lord will rule as king over all the earth. So thank you, Father. Thank you for today. Bless us, God, as we bless you. Pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all of Cornerstone said, amen.